Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. I want to start today's story as always, at the beginning. Now I know every moment is a new beginning, so it doesn't really matter where we start, but at least with Indian spirituality, it's important that we start with the Vedas. Indian spirituality in many regards starts and ends with the Vedas. You know, the Vedas are what we call a Siddhanta, a final revelation, a final teaching. And uh, to, to understand what we mean by that will kind of give you the heart of this tradition that Swami Vivekananda brought over. So a lot of the characters that you will meet in the story today, um, like Chaitanya Deva and Shankara and Ramakrishna and Vivekananda and Yogananda and all those characters, you'll really truly understand what they were about, what they were about, and you will really truly feel what it is we're trying to say as a spiritual culture if we can take a moment to, to really feel the vibration of the Vedas. So we'll start there. Um, very briefly, there's one thing that you need to know, and that is the vast majority of the Vedas is no longer applicable to our time, not because the Vedas are lost to antiquity or because we don't understand the ideas. No, no, no. It's because we've outgrown them, you see, because the first portion of the Vedas is called the Karma Kanda. Uh, kanda means portion. Karma means actions. The Karma Kanda is the portion of the Vedas that carefully details ritual uh, activity. And there are rituals to create changes in nature, to guarantee places in heavenly realms. See, the Vedic worldview was incredibly mystical and lurid and, and, uh, um, shamanic. And the rituals were incredibly elaborate, involving vast, uh, uh, amounts of knowledge about astronomy and mathematics and linguistics and all of that, right? Now, you wouldn't go out and buy a translation of the Vedas. It, it wouldn't, be very interesting to you, and, and nor is it um, really the highest goals of Indian Indian society. So it's the second part of the Vedas that really excites us. The second part is called the Upanishads, um, and they are known as the Jnana Kanda, the philosophical portion of the Vedas. So these are a set of texts that describe the deeper meaning behind those rituals, and a lot of the teachers in these Upanishadic texts are making claims against rituals. Not that they are bad, but that the goals of rituals are limited. You know, what you can achieve through performing these intensely uh, effective rituals was not going to do it for you. It was not going to satisfy that deep inner urge for uh, liberation, joy, bliss, etc., so, um, the Upanishads, there are several, about 108 today, but many were lost the time, but each Veda has attached to it a particular Upanishad. And the Vedas, there are four of them. The sage Vyasa compiled them into these four texts. The Rig Veda being the oldest, the Sama Veda coming right after, the Yajur Veda, and the Atharva Veda. Now, for instance, the Yajur Veda has attached to it the Birhad Aranyaka Upanishad. And the Atharva Veda has attached to it the Mandukya Upanishad. So each Veda has or features an Upanishad. Typically, they are at the end, but not always. Sometimes they appear in the middle. Sometimes they appear in the beginning. But if you were to look at the Vedas, you would see, oh, ritual, 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 ritual. Oh, that's interesting. Here's something uh, examining what ritual is for and whether it's even worth doing them. Hmm? So let's, for a moment, 
ask the question, where did the Vedas come from? And the answer to this question will reveal everything about the Indian approach to spirituality. The Vedas were not invented or written by any particular author. The Vedas do not derive their authority from God. In fact, most of the Vedas are kind of, dare I say it, atheistic. They're kind of mechanistic in their view of the universe. You say these mantras, these changes happen, all right, we're done. You know, there's no one God to whom the Vedas belongs. No ultimate personal ideal or any of that. Um, so the Vedas aren't like the words of God. You know, don't make that mistake. The Vedas are not at all the holy books um, that usually come out from other traditions. It's just uh, not um, deriving authority from, from elsewhere. So how does the Veda get its authority? And the question is, how did the Vedas come about? Who wrote them? Nobody knows. That's another important point. There was not a singular prophet or messiah or anybody to whom we can point. There were a group of mysterious sages known as the rishis. Um, and actually a better word for them is mantra drashtas. Mantra means like a formula, sacred formula um, or chant. And drashta means the seer. The seer of a mantra is known as a mantra drashta. So um, legendarily, the process was a monk, uh, not a monk, sorry. There were no monastic orders yet. A sage would sit and in mystic vision, in deep meditation, in states of deep absorption, they would see congealed before them these vibrations that they translated into the mantras. Now, importantly, um, these were not inventions, they were discoveries. In the same way that electromagnetism is a discovery. You know, Tesla did not um, invent the wheel. Tesla unearthed something that had always been there, but that no one else had seen before. And this is a very important point. Um, there are inventions in the world, but then there are also discoveries. And a discovery implies that the thing being discovered is um, innate, and inherent in the structure of reality itself, and that even if there was no discoverer, it would still be there. And even if the discovery was forgotten, it would still be there. You see, and some people talk about the laws of mathematics like this. You know, if someone were to um, discover algebra and from there develop calculus, and that person were to die and never teach anybody what they learned, many, many years later, someone else would probably come up with the same thing. You see, there's no such thing as German mathematics. Yeah, there are German mathematicians with their particular idiosyncrasies, um, but there's no such thing as German mathematics, nor is there such a thing as like Chinese mathematics or French mathematics. There is just mathematics. And even if it appears to us as an artificially constructed language, there is a kind of inherent logic to it. You see, there's a structure in mathematics that is universal to the people studying mathematics. You know, even those who are innovating like uh, non-Euclidean geometry and all of that, um, they're still adhering to some basic ideas in logic, in reasoning, and in the way that we think. And the beauty of mathematics is you can communicate that across cultures. And, and not only that, you can communicate it symbolically. So you don't need like, oh, um, we all have to speak the same language. We can speak through symbols, like numbers, etc. So if you think of mathematics as being an inherent feature of the reality, of reality, and I know, um, there might be an, I'm in good hands. I see Mikey, Anthony, Michael, you're, you're all, I know, uh, mostly Platonist. Um, so you're mostly okay with me saying that mathematics is an inherent feature of reality. Um, but for those non-Platonists in the room who don't believe in like 
forms and archetypes or whatever. Don't worry. Um, that's not really my point. I'm not here to give you a philosophy of math lecture. It's enough now to say that you can see how mathematics might be universal. It might be discovered. Um, what about the laws of physics? You know, so for mathematics, let's move on now to laws like gravitation. Yes, these laws have been revised over time. Einsteinian physics is very different from Newtonian physics. Yet, at the end of the day, there are some laws that are predictable, observable, repeatable, and dependable. And physicists all over the world agree upon them. You know, so if those physicists died, if our entire culture was snuffed out, again, the point stands. A culture maybe far into the future will uncover those same truths. Those truths, after all, being not constructed, but inherent in the structure of reality. Yeah, mathematics is the democratic form of mysticism. Yes, mathematics is the way to teach mysticism to those who are not yet ready. <laughs> it's like a, like a mysticism light, you know. <laughs> Hi, Ashley, welcome. Hello. Welcome, dear. So the laws of mathematics and the laws of physics, are most of them were discovered, not invented. Similarly, the Vedas are a kind of spiritual mathematics, a kind of spiritual physics. They are self-evident because their truths are intrinsically resonant. When you hear them, they should A, check out with reason. Sat-tarka. In other words, none of these tr truths in the Upanishads should offend one's own innate sense of logic and reason. And that's kind of beautiful, right? The idea that something is true by virtue of it being true for you is kind of an innovative idea. You know, most world traditions say it's true because someone said so or because it's in a book. And if you don't think that, um, there's a stake over there and there's a fire about to be lit. So get on board, right? Um, but, but you don't hear that kind of languaging. It's, no, um, if it's not true for you, then you must refine your intellect, see into it, feel into what the argument is saying, and, and you'll, you'll feel in the light of your own reason that it is true. It's self-evident. That's the first thing. The second thing is, um, uh, the Vedas, they are a vibration and they are by no means exclusive to Indian rishis. It just so happens that the role of the dice in this particular, um, historical adventure that we've had here in this plane, it just so happens that India, um, was uniquely positioned to be the cradle of the world's spiritual aspirations, particularly because the climate was so good for it, you know? Um, Remember, there was a big kind of confluence between two nations and it had crushed a big landmass full of nutrients and, and flora and it had created the Himalayas. You know, so you had this very rich land full of prana that was just generating crops and the weather was nice. And so people weren't so involved in fighting for their lives. And in some other parts of the world, it was cold. So men's intellects, men, women, people, their intellect immediately turned to how can we stay warm? How can we protect against the saber-toothed tigers? It was more of like a practical inclination. You know, we devoted our time to more practical matters. Whereas um, in ancient India, the rishis had the leisure to inquire into the deeper aspects of human life, the subtler dimensions, not the how to live, because they already had mastered that pretty early on, but the why to live. So the first thing to recognize about the Vedas is the effectivity of the rituals in the Vedas brought Indian civilization, like early cities like Mohenjo-daro, Harappa, brought these cities immense wealth, you know, immense wealth, immense um, uh, progress. There was great infrastructure. Yes, good idea, good idea. Great infrastructure, all of that. And so necessarily then, after having secured pleasure, wealth, fame, the human mind 
began asking the deeper questions. What's the meaning of all of this? You know, is, is this just luxury? I mean, is there more to life than cattle and cows and money and, and pleasure and, and, and lands, etc.? That's where the Upanishads come in. So here, let's transition into the, the most important claim. Um, the, the only claim that I think you really need to hear from me, and we can end it here, actually. If only this message is carried across, we're done. And the message is this. If you live for the body, if you live for the pleasures of the body, you will die frustrated. It's not that the pleasures of the body are bad. It's just that, um, as the poet Hafiz might say, it's one of the cheaper rooms in the hotel. I'd like to see you in better lodgings. You know, the idea is most of us are content to chase sensual gratification. You know, people go to university and make this big pretense of going to a place of higher learning, but a lot of them are really just looking for a good job. You know, they're looking for a degree so they can get a good internship and get a good job. Why do they want to get a good good job? So they can make some money. And why do they want money? So they can eat what they want to eat when they want to eat it. You know, they can look at what they want to look when they want to look at it. They can hear what they want to hear when they want to hear it. You know, and they can touch and feel all that. Um, you see, we live and die, most of us, for the senses. Our entire lives revolve around sense gratifications. And in fact, we feel their pull most strongly. You know, the sex craving and even the greed craving is um, kind of based off of the desire for sense gratification. Here we call this karma, pleasure, pleasure on the level of the senses. And these things are not bad. That's the most important thing. It's not wrong to want sense desires. Okay, bye, Don. In fact, um, we have a name for this kind of enjoyment. It's called Vishaya Ananda. Ananda means bliss. And Ananda, that word, I'm sure many of you have heard, carries a divine connotation. Ananda, a kind of supreme bliss. Vishaya Ananda, Vishaya Ananda, is the bliss through the senses, Vishaya. And the bliss through the senses is the most limited, muddled, and uh, uh, um, unfulfilling kind of bliss there is. But it is bliss nonetheless. You see, it is bliss nonetheless. And for this kind of bliss, we live and die. Don't you think that there might be higher goals in life, higher aspiration, joys and blisses deeper and more profound? Um, this is probably why you came to spiritual life. Because you tasted the ice cream and you realized after a fleeting moment of pleasure, the pleasure was gone and only left you craving more. And soon you realize the insatiable hunger of the body. You know, pleasures get boring, they get old very quickly, and the pursuit of pleasure often weakens the body and creates illnesses that in later life we have to pay for, which often we try to escape from with more sense gratification. So here, the first claim of the Vedas is, you can go into the world and secure for yourself all sorts of sensual pleasures. They won't do it for you. Vishayananda is limited, it's fleeting, and it's not that abiding joy that you truly crave. So most of the Vedic rituals grant you just this kind of thing, Vishayananda, you know, and they grant you more and more rarefied versions of it. So maybe the world's pleasures weren't enough for you. That's okay. There's a ritual that will grant you a seat in a heavenly abode, and there you can enjoy some pleasures. But notice this, whether it is a heavenly pleasure or an earthly taste of ice cream, it is a pleasure nonetheless. And not only that, it is a pleasure bound in time. What starts 
must end. So if you seek something that is in time, it's something that will necessarily go to. So most of our lives are spent searching for something we know not what, and then when we think we have found it, the rest of our life is spent in either growing it or keeping it, fearing that we will lose what we've gained. You see, like this, we all live and die. Uh, a great yogi once said, said um, by the servant of servants, I have been made a servant. Uh, he meant the sense organs, the indriyas, are servants to the mind, the manas. And the mind serves me. Yet, look what's happened. My mind rushes after sense objects. One advertisement is all it takes to draw me out of my tranquility and into a state of restless agitation. All right, bye, Michael. And I'm in this state of restless agitation. And then um, my, my I go along with it. My mind follows the sense organs and I am whipped this way and that. And sooner or later, I recognize um, enough is enough. I'm done being whipped around by the, the sense pleasures, you know. And so the first step here is to reclaim one's mastery, to reclaim one's agency and to say, I should aspire to higher pleasures. Are there such things? I mean, is there more to life than just pleasure of the level of the body and also of the level of the mind? You know, like, oh, the reward of having built this or created this empire or done this amount of good deeds, all of that, these kind of um, uh, ego rewards. Is there more to life than that? The Upanishads, the philosophical portion says resoundingly, yes, yes, and yes. Higher than Vishayananda, higher than the bliss of the body and the mind, is the bliss of the spirit, which is called Bhajananda, the joy of contemplating deep spiritual teachings, the kind of bliss you get when you're meditating, the bliss you get when you're singing devotional songs, really the bliss you get when you engage in any kind of spiritual activity. Is that the highest though? No, there is a higher bliss still. And that is the source of all bliss. That is awakening into the fountainhead of bliss itself. Uh, Satchit Ananda, the supreme bliss, the ineffable bliss, that is God realization. Now, what is God realization? Um, that will take the next three hours. So we're not really going to get into it. It's enough, it's enough to say now that this is the highest goal of the Vedas. The Upanishads say all goals short of realization of the supreme absolute, all goals short of that are limited. You know, and as long as you live for limited goals, you will continually die and be reborn in this frustrating, never ending cycle of pleasure and pain. When you are ready to leave that behind, then we start talking. If you're still here because you want sex, money, power, then nothing I have to say will ever interest you. You know, because I will tell you to practice continence to some degree or another, to overcome lust to some sense. I will tell you to leave behind greed and to not claim any money as your own. It's all God's money. Even if it's in the bank account, don't touch it. Don't see it as yours. Spend it as it needs to be spent, but never get trapped by it. You, these are the things I will tell you. You know, I will tell you to renounce all sense of, of, of authorship. You cannot do anything. Everything that is done is done through you. You are not the doer. You are merely um, a vessel and a, a machine. The doer is from beyond you. So you cannot claim any credit. So no name, no fame, no sexual gratification, no wealth, no fortune. Why would you want to walk this way? <laughs> and to those of you who still want to enjoy the world, you ought to. 
Certainly you ought to. One should not leave behind the world before one is adequately ripe to do so. If the fruit is wrested from the branch before it falls of its own accord, it will do harm to the tree and to the fruit. It will be a very sour fruit. And we don't want those sour fruits in true spiritual life. <laughs> a monk who is sad is a sad monk. We want none of those. So if you still have some attachment to the world, by all means, and that's kind of the wisdom of the Vedas. You know, it says, hey, you know what? People want wealth. People want pleasure. Here are a bunch of rituals to get it over with. <laughs> so the karma kanda of the Vedas is designed to take you through all the desires because desires are not bad. They're only limited until finally you have a taste for the ultimate, the absolute desire, the desire to realize who you are, what this world is made of, and to consummate a human life. So here I just want to say the goal of our tradition is joy is meaning, is purpose in a human life. It's not philosophy for philosophy's sake so you can impress a Tinder date. You know, it's not just mere intellectualization. It's a deep inquiry into what takes, what, it, what does it take to live a life of meaning? How can you truly be happy in this world? You know, and the central message of the Upanishads is um, true joy. Yes, true joy, ananda. The real joy is the unconditioned joy. The joy that is not threatened by a change in external circumstances. What a fickle and petty joy it is if it can be taken away from you. And believe me, it will. This was the Buddha's great teaching in the 6th century, 400 years before the Christ. Or sorry, 600 years before the Christ. The Buddha's great teaching was, hey, everyone you love, sorry to say, they're going to die. And that's hard to hear, but you have to hear it. And not only that, this body that you have is headed to the graveyard, headed to the cremation ground. The body is on a river of dissolution. No matter how much asana you do, no matter how many dietary programs in California we subscribe to, nothing will really keep the body intact. And there are alchemists who do it, who keep the body going for a long time, but they're usually shriveled up, dried up prunes. So at least you're not able to keep the body alive in the way that you want. And the Buddha wants us to realize that. So given that the body is um, transient, given that it is momentary, necessarily its joys, its pleasures are transient and momentary too. Now, all the pleasures of the mind, like, oh, today I made fortune. Tomorrow it will all go away. Fortune is fickle. Money comes, money goes. So if you delight in praise, you are susceptible to blame. So today, if someone says, oh, you are so smart, so intelligent, you're so great, and you think to yourself, oh, yes, yes, I am. All right. I'm the shit. I'm the G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. Tomorrow, someone will be better than you. Or you'll make a mistake and someone will say, you're terrible, etc. Um, you see, if you accept praise, you're open to blame. If you accept fortune, you're open to um, uh, poverty. If you accept pleasure, you must, you must accept pain. And if, you, if you're open to happiness, then you must accept sorrow too. Because these things are on the level of the body and the mind. They are in a duality and they are constantly in flux. You cannot have one without the other. So make no mistake, pleasure on the level of the body is good but limited. Why is it limited? Because it comes and goes. It's very momentary and it doesn't bring lasting satisfaction. Pleasure on the level of the mind is good but it's limited. It's giving you slightly more satisfaction than pleasure in the body. But even that happiness in the mind is a limited, limited thing. So yoga is not here to make you happy. <laughs> it's to make you finish your craving for happiness and thereby give you true joy. Yoga is not here to make your body stronger. It understands that it's going to die. It's not here to bring pleasure to the body. Um, it's not here to bring really peace to the mind. It's here to take you elsewhere. 
Uh, yes, beautiful, Ashley, beautiful. So it's here to really draw you into that in human life that is most worth having. So we've got the Upanishads, right? And the Upanishads are the part of the Vedas that really tried to get to the heart of it, the heart of the teaching. And then um, we like to say um, the Upanishads are like great celestial cows. And Krishna, the incarnation of God that appeared sometime 200 years before the Christ, maybe, um, milked the cows. <laughs> it's kind of like a, like a slogan in, in the literature. Krishna milked the cows into one tall glass of healthy milk called the Bhagavad Gita. So the Gita is the essential teachings of the Upanishads, kind of condensed into one text and given to the people as a kind of uh, a practical manual. But make no mistake, the teachings of the Upanishads um, the highest and most sublime of those teachings are in the Gita. The Gita is just the Upanishads. So let's review. The first thing that Krishna teaches Arjuna is um, don't be a wuss, stand up and fight. Be active, take, take responsibility for your life, you know. Um, yes, you're suffering now, but don't just accept that. Get up and, and work your way out of that suffering, you know. I like in the Mundaka Upanishad, there's a beautiful uh, mantra. It says, pick up the Maharashtram, the mighty bow that is the Upanishads. Pick up the bow that is the Upanishads. And upon that bow, place the arrow of a mind purified through meditation and selfless service. And shoot, aiming for realization, liberation, joy ineffable, joy unending, joy unconditioned. So you see that kind of archery example. The bow is the Upanishad. The arrow is the mind purified. And the goal is liberation. Obviously, that made its way into the Gita with our metaphor of Arjuna and his bow and arrow and all of that. And apparently he cast down his bow and he threw aside the, the, the teachings and he was very glum and upset. And Krishna's first teaching, you know, and, and everyone likes to like philosophize about the Gita. What did Krishna say? Before he said anything, he said, get up and fight. And so the first call of the Upanishads is to strength. Strength is the name of our tradition, you know. Uh, take responsibility for your life. You are not the victim to anyone, you know. You suffer by your own hand and you will become free by your own hand also. And whose hand? Ultimately, you'll realize it's the hand of God, you know. For I can of my own self do nothing. Anyway, so in the Upanishads, uh, that's the first kind of message that you get from Krishna. The second one is, don't worry about death, Arjuna. Changing bodies like changing clothes what you truly are cannot die, you know. So the idea is that when this body goes, it's not the end of you. And that's a deep teaching of the Upanishads too, that you are not the body. And um, we can prove it to you, but I won't do that today. <laughs> In fact, that's all we do together, right? All we do is, is, is prove uh, right now, here and now, that what you took yourself to be, you are not. You think you are this body, but you are not. Um, it is only through error that you identify. So that's the first teaching. You're not the body, nor are you the mind. You are the witness in which the body and mind come and go. That's what Krishna teaches Arjuna. So let's summarize the Gita. You know, let's summarize it in one word. Can we do that? Can we summarize all of the Upanishads, all of the Gita into just one word? In other words, love, that's good. I like that. Love, yeah, Ananda, love, um, you know, what is Indian spirituality trying to teach? And witness, that's good too. Um, love is a natural state once you discover the witness. Of course, once you realize you're not the body and mind, you don't fear anymore. There's no like clinging, 
There's no craving. And as a result, there's a kind of unconditional love and spaciousness. Um, so you're right. The witness will bring you love, certainly. Now remember, the Gita and the Upanishads um, are offering us a means to get there. So maybe a better way of phrasing my question is, what is one word that describes the method of Indian spirituality? All of it, the Gita, the Upanishads, the Vedas, the, the one word that best captures the spirit of India, or at least the spirit of Indian spirituality in practice, in application. And that word is the Gita backwards. So if you say Gita, 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 eventually you'll be saying another Sanskrit word. Tyaga, 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 Tyaga. That word in Sanskrit, Tyaga, means renunciation. That's it. That's the highest ideal of Indian spiritual life. Nobody wants to hear it in the West, but believe me, when you actually understand what it is we're saying, immediately you'll renounce. And not only that, renunciation, and this is mind-blowing, is not a practice. You don't have to practice renunciation. Renunciation is a fact. So you think you're holding on to the body, it will run away from you. Every night you go into deep sleep. Uh, in that deep sleep, even a mother, you know, with the strongest attachment um, to a child, even that mother becomes a perfect renunciant in deep sleep. Gone is the body. Gone are thoughts of my life. Gone is the thought of all attachments, house, home, family, all gone. So every night we, we enter into that state. But even in our waking life, you know, the more we hold on to money, the more it runs away from us. So you can see, you think that the body and the mind belongs to you, but they don't. And so renunciation is not a practice. You don't have to give it up. You've lost it already. <laughs> renunciation is a fact. And when you realize that fact, uh, life will become effortless, peaceful, and spontaneous. You won't worry about increasing your wealth. You know, you will be okay with your kids um, not going to private school. I, I teach at a few, and, and sometimes it can be a, you know, a, a, a pretty dark training for the child to, to be put in a system that says, oh, uh, material luxury is the value of life, you know? So at the end of the day, all these narratives like, oh, I need this money because my kids, or I need this money because of that, all these greed narratives go away when we realize, actually, we have no money anyway. You know, we were born poor, we will die poor. No matter how much comes in and out of the bank account, it's not really ours. And the moment we think it is, all suffering ensues. <laughs> and this body, it comes and it goes. We think it is ours, but it has its own rhythms, you know? It will develop its own diseases when it wants. Um, no matter how healthy we've been, you know, there are some absolute rogues who practice unhealthy lifestyles and live forever. Someone once joked, we better take care of the environment. Think of the world you're leaving behind uh, for Keith Richards. <laughs> but you know, some people will just live forever. Um, and other people who practice healthy lifestyles die very young, you know? So the body, exactly, actually, it comes and it goes by its own volition. It falls off like a leaf in autumn just by itself driven by the winds of karma, the leaves blow off the tree. And so many leaves you have shed before, we just don't remember them. So giving up the body, giving up money, these are all not things you need to do. These are things you've already done. All that's left is for you to recognize it. <laughs> so the goal of Indian spirituality is renunciation. And the means to renunciation is to realize that you've already renounced it. Now, once you've renounced everything, what's left? Service. You know, because after you've renounced everything, you'll realize all the energy you previously spent trying to hold on to the limited body and the pleasures of the body and the limited mind and the pleasures of the ego, all of that energy gets freed up. Now you don't want money anymore, right? You don't want fame anymore. Now you become a true force in the world. You see, because you have nothing to lose. 
And who could be more powerful in the world than someone who has nothing to lose? They'll take huge intellectual risk. They'll take business risks, you know, because they're not afraid to lose money. What's bankruptcy and poverty to those who recognize that the soul is beyond all such things? I'm poor already. Uh, so what's there to lose, you know? So I will not have some food to eat. I've learned to fast. You know, through meditation, I've learned to be okay uh, if the belly rumbles a little bit. I know I'm not my body, you see. What's a little bit of praise and blame? It won't disturb the mind. The mind remains peaceful. So once you achieve renunciation, yes, we're phased by change. But once we're beyond change, look at how much focus will come into our lives. Suddenly, you know what's weird? The one who has renounced it all will have it all. When you give up money, it will chase your pants down. Uh, you know, because for some reason, those who take risks, you know, they say fortune favors the bold. I don't think that uh, adage is quite accurate. Fortune favors the reckless. Because the reckless don't care for fortune. <laughs> the reckless don't favor fortune. So fortune favors the reckless. <laughs> you see, the real irony of life is the body becomes healthy. The mind becomes calm and life becomes comfortable and pleasurable um, when you no longer want any of that. And when it's no longer anything to you, because you've discovered the one thing worth wanting. So just to wrap up this discussion, in the Gita, there's a beautiful line. And it says the goal, it, it kind of gives us the goal, to be established in that state of peace, that unconditional joy, that supreme ananda, such that, na dukena gurupani vichalyate, such that um, not even the heaviest of sorrows can shake you. A peace unshook by the worst things that can happen to us in life. Can you imagine what that's worth? It's priceless, you know. No amount of money would be too little money to spend in acquiring that thing. Someone once joked, the first part of our life is spent in making money, and in doing so, we ruin our health. The second part of our life is spent in spending money to maintain our health. <laughs> There's only one thing to say to America, really, from Indian spirituality, and that is give up the money. Not to say immediately donate it all to charity today. That's not at all what we're saying. It, we're talking about something far subtler. Give up mental attachment to money. You don't need to make more because what you need will come. And I, I can't even explain how it does, but whether it does or not, doesn't matter, right? Because know how much it's causing trouble. A safety net is still a net, you know? Um, see how much grief, this body, this money, how much it has caused you over these years. Why not let it go now? Just like that, simply like that. This is the summary of all Indian philosophy. That one gentle motion. Of course, it's easier said than done. Uh, what if Arjuna said to Kishore, I renounce battle and, I uh, and, I and the identity of being a warrior. Exactly. And you know what? That's what Arjuna was saying. Arjuna was saying to Krishna, I renounce battle because it doesn't mean anything. The, you know, Arjuna was spiritually bypassing in the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita. And Krishna was saying, no, 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 no. You can't spiritually bypass out of this um, because it doesn't matter anyway. So if, if it doesn't matter, you might as well be in the world doing your work because uh, it's not your work to do. And the fruits cannot bind you anyway. So you're right. That's funny, Anthony. So that's it. Um, and from understanding this, now we can understand the lives of the great masters. Yeah, what does differentiate renunciation from bypassing? Only you will know. And the difference is the peace, the ineffable peace. True renunciation is light, spacious, um, um, broad-minded, and intensely productive. So if you're a renunciant and somehow your life, of course, of course, Jennifer, somehow your life doesn't um, ennoble others, if there isn't a kind of fragrance, then the flower has not bloomed. 
It's pretending to have bloomed. <laughs> so bypassing is not wanting to do anything because bypassing, there's like a preference, you know, I prefer not to do that. But in true spirituality, there's a kind of preferencelessness with regards to what the body and mind are doing. Anyway, that's a deep theological point, certainly something we should take up um, in earnest. But for now, just moving forward, Here's the foundation, and we can kind of go through the rest of the story uh, smoothly, having built this foundation. So um, we've had, in the course of our culture, since the Vedas and the Upanishads, so many great masters. In the 6th century BCE, we had the Buddha, who founded the Buddhist system. He rejected the authority of the Vedas, but still practiced meditation and still preached the ideals that we found in the Upanishads. Then we had... Uh, Vardhamana Mahavira, who started the Jain path, he too rejected the authorities of the Vedas, but preached all the Vedic ideals of I am not the body, I am not the mind, I am going to um, not live and die for the senses, I'm going to live for something higher than the senses. So you can see the Buddha and, and, and Mahavira, both of them are heterodox schools. They're not necessarily Hindu, yet see how they champion Vedic ideals. Essentially, what I'm trying to say here is that the Vedas are not Hindu, you know. They are no more Hindu than mathematics is Arabic, you know. They are eternal laws, and the name we give to these laws is the Sanatana Dharma, the eternal religion. The perennial philosophy is another, another phrase you might have heard used with regards to, to this kind of thing. All right, so... Um, since then, we had the Buddha and we had Mahavira. We had the founders of all the great schools of Vedic philosophy. There are six main branches. There is um, uh, one of the oldest, Sankhya, ancient school, Sankhya, a dualistic school talking about Purusha and Prakriti, the world of matter and the world of spirit. Again, Sankhya was all about moving away from matter and discovering spirit. Sankhya was all about renouncing, 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 and uh, resting in what you are. Then you had, after Sankhya, followed yoga. So yoga borrows a lot from Sankhya and it too is a practice designed to renounce. So it's a meditational approach, focusing the mind. The mind is so drawn to sense objects, so drawn to ego candy. So restrain the mind, draw in the attention and direct it towards the spiritual ideal, which is renunciation. Then of course you had Nyaya, a logical approach to God, discovering God through logic. Um, and of course, you had Vaisheshika. You see, Vaisheshika and Nyaya are pretty old. And Sankhya, Vaisheshika and Nyaya are, are pluralistic schools. Sankhya is a dualistic school. Buddhism is a, I wouldn't say non-dualistic school, um, but it, it does definitely dispense away with all the categories of Sankhya and Vaisheshika and Nyaya. Then, of course, you had Vedanta. And Vedanta is the study of the Upanishads. Vedanta is perhaps the most direct form of Upanishadic religion. And there are two kinds. There is the Purva Mimamsa, which are the Vedic ritualists. They don't like any of the philosophy and stories, etc. They reject all of that. And then there is the Uttara Mimamsa, the Vedantist, who reject all the um, um, rituals but prefer philosophy. So these are the two streams of Vedanta, or, or I should say two streams of um, Vedic religion. One is Vedanta, which is Uttara Mimamsa, philosophy, and the other one is Purva Mimamsa, a very orthodox school of Vedic ritualism. Okay, these are the six schools of Hindu philosophy, um, and of course, Tantra emerges much later. But through the course of its its history, there have been great masters, like after the Buddha, about um, 
1400 years after the Buddha, there came Shankara, the great non-dual master who is seen as an incarnation of Shiva, the great god Shiva, and Shankara taught non-duality or Advaita Vedanta, the idea that the one absolute is Brahman and it alone is real and everything else appears and doesn't actually exist. Then, of course, you had a great sage called um, Chaitanya Deva, an incarnation of Vishnu or Krishna. And Chaitanya Deva um, preached Bhakti Yoga, the path of devotion and singing the names of God and chanting in the streets. Both Shankara and Chaitanya Deva and also the Buddha brought religion to the masses. They spent their whole life walking up and down India, teaching, debating, sharing. They were great teachers. And not only did they teach, they also built institutions. So Shankara built uh, all these temples all over India, four main moths uh, and a fifth. So he built all these great moths, uh, a moth meaning a place of spiritual learning. You know, Chaitanya Deva would sing all day. He would offer discourses and then he would just sing. Later at our closing ceremony, you will meet someone who is like Chaitanya Deva herself. You know, it's Chaitanya Deva. If, if there was an incarnation ever, it's Vishnu Priya. She'll come and sing for us later and, and she will delight you. Such bhakti. So you can see in India, there's this idea that there's so many paths to approach the divine. And all of them are legit because the divine is ineffable. It's unlimited. And how can you say an ineffable, unlimited thing can now be named and limited within the narrow confines of caste, creed, philosophy, school, etc. There are as uh, as many faiths, as many paths to God, as the great sage Sri Ramakrishna would say, as you will soon see. So that's kind of the spirit of Indian spirituality. And it says in the Rig Veda, the oldest Veda, Ekam Sat Vipara Bahuda Vadanti, truth is one, though it can be spoken of in different ways by different masters. That already accepts the, uni- the the message of universality is already there. It already includes all the other world traditions all over the world as all valid approaches to God. It says that the end goal is the same. How, however a Christian practices, she will arrive exactly where the Muslim arrives when both of them have finished their journey. The Hindu, the Buddhist, the Jain, they all arrive in that same place. So this oneness of all religions is the central message of our tradition. Now, fast forward, in Bengal, uh, the capital of the British Empire, you know, was in Calcutta. Remember that India had been colonized twice by the Mughals in the 12th century and by the British um, shortly after that. Oh, Mughals, 12th century and then up to the like 18th century, you know, the British were starting to come in and take over. And by then, uh, Vedic culture had devolved. From being a lofty, idealistic, and humanistic culture, it had become a kind of caste-ridden, degenerate, feudalistic um, place where a group of priests uh, tyrannized the people in the name of lust and greed under the pretense and disguise of religion. They lorded it over the masses. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) This is the history of all religious traditions all over the world. Uh, A group of priests eventually bastardized religion and turned religion to the service of mammon or lust and greed. So this was going on in India and there appeared in a very small humble village called Kamar Pukur, a boy named Gadadar. Gadadar was not interested in mathematics. He was not very interested in his studies at school. He loved art. That was one of his favorite subjects at school. Um, but more than anything, young Gadadar, this young pure soul, 
he was most fond of monks, of sadhus, sadhus being the great spiritual renunciants of India who can be seen walking all over the place. Much like Shankara and Buddha and Chaitanya, the sadhus of modern-day India um, can still be seen wandering, practicing their yoga by the banks of the Yamuna and Ganga and all of that. So this boy, Gadadar, was particularly fond of such people. He would sit in the evenings and listen to the stories they told. He used to love taking part in these plays. And plays in India are not secular. They're usually about religious themes, about religious episodes that occurred in the mythology known as the Puranas. And when he would act out these parts, he would often go into trance states. You know, he, would very, he was very sensitive to spiritual ideas. Now, his brother eventually secured a position as a priest in a temple and invited this young boy, Gadadar, to come and get an education and become learned and make his way in the world. And this young boy, Gadadar, said, what use do I have for a mere breadwinning education? You know, you see, this boy is echoing a little bit as to what Jesus would have taught. You know, man does not live by bread alone. Already you can see, this young boy has such disdain for worldliness. And he even said, all these priests, they pretend to be religious, yet they are like vultures. While on high, their gaze is fixed upon the rotting carrion on the floor. In other words, while the priests make a big pretense of being lofty and spiritual, their gaze is not upward, it's fixed downward in the carnal pit of lust and greed. Gadadar saw through that hypocrisy, as many of us see through the hypocrisy of um, all these great institutions that pretend to be what they're not. You know, um, So Gadadar said, I don't want a mere breadwinning education. Um, so he took a humble position as a priest, in a temple of Kali. It's the temple of Dakshineshwar um, in, in Bengal, near Calcutta. So he was in this temple, and in this temple, suddenly there emerged in his heart a tremendous yearning for God-realization. So you'll recall from earlier in today's talk, what Gadadar wanted was what the Upanishads promised, the source of all bliss, the ineffable bliss, the unshakable bliss that is not shook by any of the sorrows of the world, that desire for God-realization awakened in young Gadadar's heart, and apparently for a period of 12 years, in increasing intensity, young Gadadar would just yearn for God. He would just weep for God. He didn't practice any formal meditation or yoga. Um, he was pretty illiterate and unschooled in the ways of spiritual life. He didn't read any great philosophical text. He just cried. Night after night, he sat in front of the statue and struggled with his faith. He looked at the statue of Kali and he asked in a kind of pleading tone, a tone choked with emotion, Oh, Holy Mother, you revealed yourself to Ram Prasad, a great 17th century sage and mystic and poet. You revealed yourself to Mirabai. You revealed yourself to all these people. Why won't you reveal yourself to me? Do you really exist or are you just mere stone? You see, he struggled with his faith, but he felt deep down that there must be something to it, you know? And every now and then he would get little hints. He would hear the tinkle of Kali's anklets as she ran up and down the stairs, and he would catch glimpses of this deity manifesting to him. So he was, through and through, a bhakta, a devotee of God, one who wanted to find out if God really did exist. Remember, in Indian spirituality, we don't say, just believe God exists. Never. We say, if God exists, you must see her. You must be able to experience it. And Krishna, Ramakrishna, oh sorry, Gadadar wanted this, you know. And after weeping and weeping and weeping, after much yearning, he achieved his vision of God. He saw clearly manifested before him Kali. 
And not only that, he had this vision whereby a, a monk emerged from him and a worldly man emerged from him. And the monk thrust the trident into the worldly man and killed it. And at that moment, he was done with all lust and greed. He could not look upon a woman except as his mother or as his sister. He preferred to see them as his mother. So this, of course, brought about episodes of holy madness. He would see these ecstatic visions and he would just like wig out and go into these ecstatic trance states and he would be acting kind of bizarre, you know? He'd be kind of feeding the, the food that was intended for the deities. He would feed that food to like the cat and he would say, the holy mother showed me that the cat is also holy mother. All is Holy Mother. Everything is consciousness. So I was feeding Holy Mother by feeding the cat. And people thought, oh, this is very bizarre behavior. So uh, his uh, relatives sent some uh, prostitutes, you know, to go and like help relieve him of his tension. And the moment the women walked into his hut, when he saw them, he went into trance. You know, needless to say, he couldn't get it up. In other words, he couldn't see them in any other ways except the Divine Mother coming to him uh, and, and, and bringing out of him a spiritual mood. You have to understand here that Ramakrishna, real, uh, Gadadhar, young Gadadhar, really walked the talk. He, his whole life was a life of devotion and renunciation. He truly was beyond lust and greed. And this turned him from a young aspirant into a holy man. Um, and as a holy man, you know, and, and by the way, his definition of a holy man is one who loves God and one who lives for God. You know, and so as a holy man, he had an appetite not just for Kali, but for all forms of spirituality. So he practiced as a Christian and had a vision of Christ. He practiced as a Muslim and attained to the highest state therein. He practiced Tantra with a, a female teacher. He practiced the Vaishnava faith with a male teacher. He practiced non-duality and he quickly surpassed all of his teachers. What it took his teachers years to achieve, he achieved in a short manner of time. And you see, in America, Often we don't see such people like this. We don't know what it's like to be beyond lust and greed. Everyone around us, all of them are living for lust and greed. Uh, greed is disguised as ambition. Lust is disguised as love here. <laughs> we celebrate them as values and ideals. But in India, you do meet such people like this who are truly living for God and God alone, you know? And it was the kind of thing where you would be able to live with them. You know, so many of the disciples of Ramakrishna stayed with him and were with him every moment of the day. So they were giving him close scrutiny. A disciple should test her master as much as her master should test the disciple. So this young boy, I, I kind of, I gave him away already. I've been saying Ramakrishna a lot. But this young boy later came to be recognized as an avatara, as an incarnation of God. This is a theological point. We don't need to really get into what an incarnation is. But it suffice to say that Ramakrishna is seen in the same light as Rama, as Krishna, as the Buddha, as Shankara, as Chaitanya, as Jesus. All of these beings are seen as God-made man or God-made flesh. You see, and Ramana, Ramakrishna was just such a person. He was declared before all these pundits to be an incarnation. And, he, and how did he take it? He was like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> He didn't care, you know, he was just, he was happy to do his thing. And what his thing was, was teaching. He taught mostly through simple parables. And more than anything, he had a yearning for like-minded souls. Uh, he wanted young, young, strong, spiritual aspirants who would aspire to the highest ideals of spiritual life. And he even went up to the roof and cried, where are my disciples? Where are the young boys who would come and, and, and champion and understand what I have to teach? You know, and so 
eventually they came. Uh, all these great masters today, Swami Brahmananda, Turiyananda, basically India's greatest saints, many of them started off as young disciples to Ramakrishna, who is Gadadhar had now become Ramakrishna. So they came and he instructed them. And, you know, in the middle of the night, he would kick them awake and he says, Your yogis, why are you sleeping so much? It's 3 a.m. Go to the temple and meditate. <laughs> He would be very fierce with them, you know. He really pushed his disciples hard. And he constantly berated them for attachment to women and to gold, he would say. Because a lot of his disciples were male. But to the women disciples, he would say the same. um, uh, Away from lust and greed. And that was his central message. Lust and greed were the real impediments to spiritual life. Why? Because they reified your separateness from everything. Now, among his disciples, his foremost disciple was young Narendra. And Narendra Nath, was born to a rich aristocratic family um, and that family had fallen on hard times in Narendranath's youth. So Narendra had already discovered the master, was already kind of visiting him, um, but was disturbed by his recent poverty. You know, he previously enjoyed wealth and now, at the, since his father passed away, he was the sole breadwinner for his family and he was kind of struggling with material life and that, of course, creates storms for his spiritual life. He was a Western materialist in the beginning, you know, a rationalist. He knew that there was something to spiritual life, but he wasn't ready to accept it on face value. He really tested the master. He would make fun of Ramakrishna's visions and call them hallucinations. You see, he was so keen and exacting and demanded rational explanations for everything. And when other disciples said to Ramakrishna, why do you accept such abuse, such haughtiness? Ramakrishna says, I don't think his haughtiness is disrespectful. It's actually a testament to his strength. He used the word manliness to his uh, 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 iron will. And that sort of thing would be very important for his life in the future. Now, young Naren eventually became the most ardent of Ramakrishna's disciples. And naturally, he became the leader amongst the young disciples. Ramakrishna, to the end of his life, got throat cancer. What would be the value of an incarnation of God who didn't suffer? Jesus had to suffer. You know, the Buddha suffered. Um, Nisargadath Maharaj also got throat cancer. All these great masters got cancers. Ramakrishna got cancer and he showed us how to suffer. In other words, great masters often suffer to be a role model to us, to teach us how to suffer. He was like smiling and laughing. He was not bothered at all by it. You know, in one episode, he's saying, ow, it hurts. And then Hari Maharaj, who later turned into Swami Turiyananda, said, um, you say, ouch, but I see that you are in bliss. Immediately, Ramakrishna started laughing and he said, ah, you rascal, you've caught me out or you found me out. Yes, I am in bliss. <laughs> So um, he had throat cancer, right? And, and when he died, he appointed Narendranath, the spiritual heir um, and the leader of the young monks, or sorry, the young, young boys who had come and, and trained with Ramakrishna. So one day, all the boys were sitting around a fire thinking about what to do next. And Narendranath, uh, the strong leader amongst them, said we should be monks. You know, Ramakrishna would have wanted us to carry on his work. Um, let's organize ourselves as monks. And there on that day, they decided to take vows of poverty and chastity and become the first band of monks that today is known as, that would later become, you know, the Ramakrishna mission or the Ramakrishna order. And it just so happened that that day was Christmas Eve. <laughs> so you can think all of this like kind of began on Christmas Eve. And, and uh, there was a great affinity for the Christ who was a true renunciant, one of the best renunciants of, of, our, of our time, you know, um, 
so the the boys became monks and they all took different names you know like hari became swami turiyananda rakal young rakal became swami brahmananda etc etc and all these boys they moved into a small house that was said to be haunted it was called the badanagor monastery and uh, uh they apparently were living in such hardship they had a little bit of boiled rice without even any salt to flavor it. Um, they spent all their days in the study of scripture and meditation and the contemplation of the master's teaching. They discussed spirituality with one another. They sang music in the night. They went without sleep and food for many days in the ardor of spiritual work. In other words, they, inspired by what they had seen at, at Ramakrishna's ashram, inspired by the role modeling that their master had presented, they took to spiritual life you know, studied Sanskrit, Narendranath, their fearless leader, and they started kind of progressing on the spiritual path. But they weren't sure what to do next. You know, yes, Narendranath was the leader, but Ramakrishna was kind of like their sun, and they were the planets orbiting around the sun. Now the sun had gone out, or rather it had passed on its rays into these young disciples. What would they do? What next? You know, um, because they all wanted to realize God, pilgrimage is very sacred to Indian spiritual life. So all these boys, they kind of went off to different directions and they did pilgrimages here and there. They all practiced the life of a wandering monk. They wandered in the Himalayas. They would visit each other when they were sick. They would chance upon each other here and there. All these incredible stories about their adventures, you know, and, and, and a lot of Vivekananda's, sorry, Narendranath's character was shaped by his uh, adventures in the Himalayas. Now, one day, Narendranath said, I need to figure out what to do next. I'm just going to leave the monastic life behind. I'm going to like, kind of leave my old monk name behind. He wasn't Vivekananda at the beginning. He was Narendranath, and he had taken on several different monk names, like Swami Satchidananda and stuff like that. Uh, I'm not sure if that's one he took, but he took a bunch of different ones, Vivid, all these different ones. Anyway, so he, he said, I'm going give to give up my name, and I'm just going to wander India. I don't want to be followed. I'm going to go by myself and I'm going to see um, what this country is all about, what it needs, and what we can do next. Now, his goal at first was to realize God. He would go into mountains and just sit in meditation. His goal was not to like help the world. His goal was just to find God for himself. But every time he did it, he felt a pang, you know, a feeling of like, no, I, I, there's more to life than just, you know, sitting and meditating. And particularly this was felt when he wandered up and down India for many years. He saw the poverty, the degeneracy of Indian society, racked by much colonial and, uh, what do you say, what do you call it? Um, racked by the ills of colonization from the Mughals and the British, by years and years of forgetting the spiritual grandeur of the Upanishadic era, India had fallen into despondency. There was a rigid caste system where people were excluded from basic necessities and lived and died in abject poverty. Swami Vivekananda saw all of this, young, you know, this young man, and it touched him so deeply. It rent his very soul. And he would cry, you know, he would say, oh, you know, he would, he would hold his heart and he would say, May I be born and reborn. May I suffer a thousand miseries. If only I can worship the only God in which I believe. The God that is the sum total of all souls. My God, the wicked. My God, the afflicted. My God, the poor. You know, he had a great love for the poor of India. And more than that, 
please, let me make this point very, very clear. He wasn't like a social worker guy, you know? He wasn't like, I'm going to fix the world and make it clean and create institutions because that way I'll be able to feel good about myself. Not, it wasn't like that. It was theological and metaphysical, the impulse that he felt. It wasn't societal, social, or even ethical. You know, it was metaphysical. In his deepest meditations, Swami Vivekananda metaphysically felt, theologically felt that God was manifest as all the people that he saw in India. God was the uh, um, uh, untouchable dying from hunger in his hut because he had been excluded by Indian society. The God herself was uh, all these people, all these souls, and not just that, all the animals too. You know, after the Buddha thought um, uh, in, in, in India, we saw the first veterinary hospitals in India. Isn't that beautiful? The idea that thanks to the Buddha's teaching, we got to see animals as life and sacred too. And the world's first veterinary institutes were set up. And elephants and cows were treated. <laughs> How exciting, right? Anyway, Vivekananda realized in his meditation the non-dual absolute, that is Brahman. And Brahman is the one that alone exists. However, all these appearances you see around you are none other than Brahman. You know, and when you see Brahman suffering, you know, dying of hunger, naturally, the only way you, you can worship Brahman, and now I'm talking more dualistically. So remember, you can't stay in that state. Often your mind must come down and take on more dualistic attitudes. So in a dualistic kind of framework, Vivekananda saw that the best way to worship God, the best way to serve God, was to serve his brother, sister, siblings, his fellow people. And not just people of India, people all over the world. But how to do it? How would this young, unnamed monk um, create better futures for all these people that he saw that were suffering? What would he do? So he wandered all over India, and then on one fateful day, he uh, went to Cape Comorin, which is in southern India. And there, he worshipped at the shrine of Kanya Kumari, the great virgin goddess of the south. And just kind of moved by inspiration, the great Swami swam across shark-infested waters to reach a kind of rock promontory that was projecting out into the ocean. And he went on top of the rock promontory and he sat there in meditation. And suddenly before him, the vision appeared. He asked the question, India is suffering. There are people who need food. There are societal conditions that need betterment. There are economic and political issues to resolve. India has a great spiritual treasure. You know, it's the cradle of civilization, the cradle of faith. However, that great spirituality had been buried by heaps and heaps and heaps of refuse. In other words, the jewel had been lost in the muck of it all, in the historical uh, societal fallout of back-to-back -back colonization, of ruthless capitalist, ca capitalism, not just on behalf of the colonizers, but also the hypocritical priestly elite. How could we help India? How could we restore India's spiritual grandeur, which Swamiji saw as um, kind of a means to the ends? So as long as India recognized herself for what she was, as long as she went back to her true spirituality, she would um, also awaken to her material prosperity too, as we described earlier in this lecture. So what to do? How would he bring material prosperity to India? Suddenly he realized, what about all the monks? Right now, there are millions of people in the billions of people in India. There are millions of people who are just spending their lives in a cave meditating. 
What if he could harness that power? What if he could galvanize the force of all the spiritual aspirants in India and direct that force to the betterment of society here in this world? Uh, what a profound humanism. It wasn't a rejection of God in favor of building a kingdom of man, you know? So I think that happened after the 30 years war in Europe. They were like, why are we trying to build a kingdom of God here on earth? Everyone's just fighting about who God is and what God is. Might as well, like, say, fuck God, let's make a kingdom of man, right? Uh, that's the kind of scientific material humanism that emerged in the modern era. It wasn't this. It was the deepest theological God-intoxicated humanism you can ever imagine. It was the humanism of the Upanishads, the Upanishadic teaching that all souls are potentially divine because all of them are none other than the one consciousness that alone exists. And if that is true, then true spiritual life is not just meditation. True spiritual life is service, but it's not just service to man. It's service to God incarnated as man. You see, this is the great uh, realization that Vivekananda had. And I don't think we speak uh, enough about how profound and innovative this idea was to serve others, not as I'm helping you because I have money and you don't know. I'm helping you because I'm actually your servant and you are God. Can you imagine if every time you gave um, a homeless person some money, it felt like you were giving prasadam or rather holy offerings, that you were feeding God himself? You know, that kind of really just changes the relationship of helper and helped and puts it in its true spirit. That's the real kind of help, the real way to feed people. But where would he get the resources to galvanize all these, all these monks? And suddenly the thought came to him, America. America, a nation slumbering upon great, great uh, spiritual understanding. You know, like America had technological and scientific advanced uh, ad ad advancements unsurpassed by anywhere else in the world. It had the dynamic energy of a new nation. As the youngest of a nation, youngest of the nations, it was ready to go, ready to build. Such eager and powerful people were in America. However, um, they had no direction. Americans were very practical, yet um, their spirituality was a bit muddled. You know, they weren't quite sure what the meaning of luxury was. They were chasing growth um, f without really a necessary understanding as to what all of it is for. And Vivekananda had the idea. I will go to America and I will trade, you know, um, the spiritual brilliance of India and I will bring back the scientific and technological brilliance of America. Do you see the greatness of this vision? It doesn't say India is better than America. It doesn't even say the West is better than India. It says the West and India are experts at two very different things. In India, we are experts at happiness, joy, spirituality. Um, right now, perhaps not so good at material things, right? Uh, because of the course of our history. Where's the West? Because of the course of their history, how powerful they've become as economic um, heavyweights. So what if we could come together? In the West, we teach spirituality. We give life meaning. In the East, we teach uh, hygiene, education, social infrastructure, so that um, better conditions of life can create better spiritual understanding, can resuscitate India's spiritual consciousness. So Vivekananda, armed with this great vision, came to America. Ah, uh, and, and this is really the most important part of the story. The vision of Vivekananda. The vision of what this great monk wanted to do when he came to America. Now, 
all of us are here in this room because of Vivekananda. If it wasn't for Vivekananda, what I would be telling you would be unintelligible. If it wasn't for Vivekananda, there would be no Yoga World Heart or Stay Home Yoga or the numerous yoga studios you see all around America and all over the world. Nobody would be, would be saying the word yoga if it wasn't for Vivekananda. So one must feel the pathos of this. When he's coming to America, he's carrying with him on that ship that's sailing to Chicago all of this. The future that would unfold is there with one guy. It's just him, you know, coming by himself. And guess what? When he arrived in Chicago, he asked about the World Fair. Uh, he arrived at the World Fair. He asked about the Parliament of World Religions that was, was going to happen. To make a long story slightly shorter, <laughs> not that much shorter, but to make a long story slightly shorter, um, uh, what ended up happening was there was a parliament of world religions being organized in America to celebrate 400 years of Americans, uh, Christopher Columbus discovering America. Yeah, it's a great movie. I, someone should make it. I know Mikey is, is a, a filmmaker. He's in that world. So we should make a Vivekananda movie. Um, Anthony will act in it with actionable steps at the ending. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So here's what happened. He went to talk at the parliament of world religions, but Nobody thought that they would have to sign him up. They just assumed that Vivekananda was so powerful a personality that he needed no credentials. <laughs> Can you imagine that he could just show up and uh, they would accept him? But when he arrived, he found that it was too late to register delegates, that only delegates with credentials would be accepted. And more harrowingly, the parliament had actually been pushed back. It was then July, it had been pushed back to September. Vivekananda's purse, which had been provided to him by great Maharajas, like the Maharaja of Khatri. And by the way, he actually rejected funds from rich people. He said, if I am to go to America, let me go with the money of the people, because I go for the people. So they actually kind of like did a GoFundMe or something and crowdfunded and sent him money because um, he didn't want to take money from rich people. He wanted to, to really just be as egalitarian as possible. But that money was soon to run out. He didn't have the funds to last till September, even as a meager Swami, you know? So he moved to Boston and on the bus to Boston, because Boston was cheaper at the time, on the bus or sorry, on the train to Boston, a lady came and sat next to him, noticed his outfit and engaged him in conversation. She later invited him to her home as a guest where he met eminent professors, one of them being... Um, uh, J.H. Wright, a Greek philosopher, a Greek professor at Harvard, who was so impressed with the Swami that he wrote to all of his friends at the Parliament of World Religions saying, to ask the Swami for his credentials is like asking the sun for its right to shine. Here is a man more learned than all of our professors put together. So it was J.H. Wright who kind of spoke on behalf of Swami Vivekananda to speak at the Parliament of World Religions. And so through him, they had kind of organized it and managed to get him into the parliament. However, funnily enough, on his way to Chicago to go to the parliament, he mislaid the address <laughs> and he got lost somewhere. So he spent the next morning wandering around the street, kind of scraggly, having slept in a boxcar the night before, uh, knocking on doors, but people were less sympathetic here in America to a wandering monk than they would have been back in India. So he was shunned and ridiculed. And finally, he just sat down, you know, he sat down on a sidewalk, like despondently. What will I do now? And a woman noticed him from her window, you know, from her house. And she invited him in and said, are you, are you with the Parliament of World Religions? You're dressed as if you would be. And he said, why, yes, I just, I forgot where it was. <laughs> and this turned out to be uh, Mrs. George 
Hale, who was uh, George W. Hale, was a very important person in Swami Vivekananda's work. Um, but eventually, thanks to her, he was registered and he went and spoke at the Parliament of World Religions. And he opened his speech, you know, with this powerful phrase, my sisters and brothers of America. He was the first speaker to dispense with any formality and to speak to people directly as an equal. And the whole crowd exploded into thunderous applause. Um, Everyone was so excited to hear this great message. Um, And for the rest of the speech, he spoke of the oneness of all religions, the divinity of the soul. You know, and he said, um, the highest ideal in religious life, down to the crudest form of fetishism, both and everything in between, are all of them attempts to grasp the ineffable. And they're all divine in one sense or another. You know, he would say, uh, the Hindu is one who is just as comfortable kneeling by a cross as she is praying at a, a mosque, as she is worshipping at the fire of the Zoroastrians. You see, he was trying to say that the Vedic religion is not Hindu. It's universal. It's sanatana dharma. It's a spiritual mathematics. And it belongs to all people. And to all people, he wanted to give it. His main idea was to bring Vedanta out of the forest and the mountains and into the marketplace, to disseminate these ennobling ideas to everyone so that they might recognize now um, uh, that they are not the body nor are they the mind. They are something much greater. So I'm sure many of you will be surprised to find out that the first yoga class given in the West had nothing to do with asana and everything to do with philosophy. Vivekananda, of course, gave many addresses at the parliament. And those addresses, those lectures were widely reported. His lectures were printed by newspapers and widely disseminated and read. He, there were posters of him all over Chicago. And apparently, according to his biographer, Swami Nikalananda, people would go and bow to those, um, uh, uh, the, the posters. You know, how exciting. He was accepted. And you know what? This is a testament to America. Honestly, this is my love letter to America. You are all so noble, so um, uh, pure that you are so ready to call something truth the moment it resonates with you. In other words, you know what's good when you see it. You know, when Vivekananda spoke and he gave his message of unity and oneness and the ideals of Hindu life, immediately you all recognize that these ideals are universal and that they're worth fighting and dying for. And, and, and you all celebrated him. You know, Americans hoisted him high as a public hero. And I think that's a testament to the spiritual grandeur of America. You know, um, it's a testament to the um, progress or the intelligence, you know, of the American spirit, the noble American spirit. Uh, we would walk a thousand miles and more to see the likes of thee. And here, I'll read you a few newspaper headlines uh, from the time just to show you how popular Vivekananda was. And we'll probably close around here. So the New York Herald. He is undoubtedly the greatest figure in the parliament of religions. After hearing him, we feel how foolish it is to send missionaries to this learned nation. The Boston Evening Post. He is a great favorite at the parliament from the grandeur of his sentiments and his appearance as well. If he merely crosses the platform, he is applauded. Uh, And this market approval of thousands he accepts in a childlike spirit of gratification without a trace of conceit. Ah, the Parliament of Religions, they used to keep Vivekananda until the end of the program (laughs) Uh, to make people stay until the end of the session. (laughs) The chairman knew the old rule of keeping the best until the last. (laughs) So sweet, huh? And uh, I like this one from um, Iowa State Register. Who undertook to combat the monk on his own ground and that was where they all tried it who tried it at all? Uh, 
his replies come like flashes of lightning, and the venturesome questioner was sure to be impaled on the Indian's shining intellectual lance. <laughs> so Christians loved him deeply. Um, many people loved him deeply, and they championed his message all over. And how did he feel about it? Apparently, after he gave his first talk at the Parliament of World Religions, he went back to his room and he wept. He cried and he cried and he cried because he knew the life that he truly loved um, was over. You know? The life of communing with God, of wandering in nature. You know, he knew that that was, was done. And that was very beautiful. Now, I want to just read you one last thing um, before we close. And that's what he went on to do. And here, he writes a letter to the daughter of George Hale. Who the, the two daughters, the Hale sisters and him, were corresponding for a long time. They were very close. And he says here, I do not know. I've become very sad in my heart since I am here. I do not know why. I am wearied of lecturing and all that nonsense. This mixing with hundreds of human animals, male and female, has disturbed me. I will tell you what it is to taste. I cannot write. I cannot speak. But I can think deep. And when I'm heated, I can speak fire. But it should be to a select few, a very select few, and let them carry and sow my ideas broadcast if they will, not I. It is only just a division of labor. The same man never succeeded in thinking and in casting his thoughts all around. Such thoughts are not worth a penny. I'm really not cyclonic at all, because they were calling him the cyclonic Hindu at the time. Far from it. What I want is no, not here, nor can I longer bear this cyclonic atmosphere. Calm, cool, nice, deep, penetrating, independent, searching thought, and a few noble, pure mirrors which will reflect it back. Catch it until all of them sound in unison. Let others throw it to the outside world if they will. This is the way to perfection. To be perfect. To make perfect a few men and women. My idea of doing this is this. To evolve a few giants and not to strew pearls to the swine and lose time, breath, and energy. Well, I do not care for lecturing anymore. It is too disgusting to bring me to suit anybody or any audience's fad. Isn't that interesting? So Vivekananda moved away from a tour of public lectures. And by the way, there was a lot of vitriol too. He dealt with a lot of smear campaigns from jealous uh, publishers and the Theosophical Society also kind of gypped him in many ways. Um, but eventually, he founded a, a kind of retreat in Thousand Island Park in New York, one of the islands kind of off of New York. And there, he brought with him a few select disciples, you know. And for seven weeks, he trained them. And he claims that this was his best work. Uh, this was right after he published the spiritual classic, Raja Yoga, which I believe Gertrude Stein said every American youth should have in his back pocket, for it is one of the great classics of our time. So after he finished Raja Yoga, he took a bit of a break, and then he went to um, Thousand Island Park and there had a retreat. And for seven weeks, he intensely trained a few noble souls, and they all took vows of poverty and chastity. They all became monks. And many of them, like the great sister Nivedita, the Irish monk, went back to India um, to, to, to help with, with women's uh, education and all of that. Ramakrishna then, after he taught his American disciples, went back to India 
He had taken the West by storm. He went back to India. He was celebrated as a hero. And in India, that's where he began his organization work. He didn't start organizations necessarily in in the UK or in America. He started them in India in order to do his initial uh, mission to bring the poverty out, uh, bring the masses out of poverty. And there he gave great public lectures with fire and brimstone, telling people to abandon just temple worship and to worship the God that is in the hearts of all their brothers and sisters. He started a monastery um, called the Ramakrishna Mission. I just want to say, this monastery is different from every other monastic order in the world in a few ways. The first, it's the first monastery that stresses the importance of uh, relief work as an aid to spiritual life. All the great masters claim that spiritual life is helped by this kind of relief work. You know, that this kind of karma yoga is very good for spiritual life. So that changed the way Indian monastics practiced their spirituality. No longer were they world renunciants in the mountains. Now they were still world renunciants, but in the marketplace, in the thick of things, serving one another. Uh, you know, a great monk in this order will live and die for the welfare of everybody, recognizing that everybody is none other than God. Secondly, the female monastics are different from the male monastics. So in other monastic orders, after a time, the males often make a decision, decisions for everybody. Vivekananda, in his brilliance, knew that in order for women to make independent decisions and to meet their unique and independent needs, they had to have independent leadership. So he carefully divided the leadership so one wouldn't affect the other and the women could maintain their independence. In fact, once he was asked to comment upon the political issue, hot-button topic, of widow remarriage in India. And he said, why are you asking me? Do I look like a widow to you? Go and ask them. Ask the widows what they want and then do that. You can see this kind of thing echoed today in conversations around pro-life, pro-choice. Such was the scope of the man, you know? So that was Vivekananda's legacy. And he taught in America um, no asana, not one asana did he teach. He taught meditation. He taught Raja Yoga. Then he taught Bhakti Yoga. He taught devotion. And most of all, he taught Jnana Yoga, the path of philosophical inquiry into the deepest questions of life. Who am I and what is this? Yoga, true yoga, is about devotion, is about focus, meditation, and it's about philosophical inquiry. Why? Because the yogi is not a person who does pinchamayurasana in the middle of the room. Yogi is not someone who has a healthy body. It's not even a person who is necessarily happy. Of course, we... We tend to be. But a yogi is one who has devoted their whole life to spiritual ideals, recognizing the limitation of worldliness. A yogi is one who daily cultivates lustlessness and greedlessness, who daily devotes her very breath, her very energy to the upliftment and the ennoblement of people all around her without ever asking, what's in it for me? She never says, oh, there's no one here in my class. Why do I have to teach it? No, she teaches it anyway. Even if it's to one person or to a recording or to the voices in the room, she will teach that class. Why? Because a yogi is a renounced, uh, a, rena a yogi lives and dies by the twin pillars of renunciation and service. And that is the great story of us. The story of how yoga came from the West and landed here, sorry, came from the East, landed here in the West, went from the West back to the East in the grandest game of ping pong you ever saw. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming today. Um, I have to go do a sound check. So let's close with a mantra quickly and I'll see you all at the closing ceremony. <laughs>
ಪೂರ್ಣಮದ ಪೂರ್ಣಮಿದಂ ಪೂರ್ಣತ್ ಪೂರ್ಣಮುದಾಚತೆ ಪೂರ್ಣ ಪೂರ್ಣಮಾದಾಯ ಪೂರ್ಣಮೇವಶಿಷ್ಯತೆ ಶಾಂತಿ 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 ಹರಿ ಓಂ ತತ್ಸಟ್ ಶ್ರೀರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣರೂಪಣಮಸ್ತೂ